0: So, last year, the Quantum Artificial Intelligence Lab, led by you, uh, announced that they had achieved quantum supremacy. Can you please explain in layman's terms what this means and also what possible implications it may have in the future?
1: (coughs) So, first I should say that um, we don't like to use this term supremacy anymore because of its uh, political um, connotation, so we rather refer to beyond classical um, computation. Um, but, yeah, basically what this experiment showed is that there is there are tasks, and we picked a specific task, um, essentially sampling from the probability distribution that comes about um, if you run a rather small quantum circuit and this quantum circuit will produce a quantum state and a quantum state we understand encodes a probability distribution and then sampling from this probability distribution is something that is very natural for um, a quantum processor to do but it turns out it's very expensive to do on a classical machine so it was essentially the first example of a task is um, that Yeah, when processor could do quickly, I'm sure you have read the numbers at the time, you know, it was like um, a few minutes, and even the uh, largest or the fastest uh, supercomputer, the Summit machine at that time, I think it's still the fastest, um, would have needed um, 10,000 years uh, to do the same task. So, of course, I should say this is a race, you know, like, Algorithms get better, the classic or the classical algorithms get better, the classical machines get better, so the numbers will shift. But then again, we are also making bigger quantum processors uh, that <laughs> then can push the uh, and better quantum processors that can um, make uh, probability distributions over more qubits with higher precision. So the easy task um, gets difficult much faster than the classical um, hardware and software can improve. Yeah.
0: Okay, so what exactly are the problems that cannot be theoretically solved by traditional computers? Can you please elaborate?
1: You're asking which tasks we expect quantum computers will be able to solve that are outside the reach of yeah. classical.
0: Yeah, and yeah. also one more question. Um, of, uh, which of the mentioned problems which uh, you think that... Uh, classical computers can't solve, can be solved by, uh, was solved by QAI lab using quantum computers.
1: So yeah, the, um, there is a list called the quantum algorithm zoo, it's maintained by the um, National Institute for Standard and Technology and they list, they're all, at least until recently, I haven't checked it, um, very recently, so I'm not sure it's up to date still, but they used to collect um, all algorithms for which it is known that there is what we call a scaling separation, meaning um, you're computer scientists, so you know um, what is the um, big O notation. Now, typically, computer scientists they ask the question, okay, this task for a given size of the problem how many steps do I need? You know, a a famous example um, is maybe unstructured search. You know, you have a database Mm -hmm. with n entries, and you put one item in your database, how long does it take? So it will take order n steps. I want to explain there's a difference in cost between a classical and a quantum machine for a certain task. And let's say, We look at the example of unstructured search, have a database of n entries, you put the item into one um, entry, and then the task is find this item, it will take you um, order n to do so. But amazingly, with a quantum processor, you would only need square root of n steps. So there is this scaling difference, and that means if you pick a problem large enough, eventually um, n will be too large for any classical machine to do it and then the square root n will win out so whenever there's a a scaling separation there would be eventually a size um, where the classical machines can keep up of course it's much more attractive to go to algorithms where the the scaling difference is not polynomial like we just discussed in the case for search, but where it's exponential. Um, there, of course, you read <laughs> quicker that the classical machine cannot keep up. But yeah, there's, there are many algorithms known for which this is the case. So, Doctor, can we
2: expect super fast quantum computers as a part of our day to day activities?
1: Um eventually, you know, with, I often think, you know, here we are in this name fallacy where we, um, I think it was an Intel person no, who, who gave this famous quote, oh, um, this is a total need for computers in the world, it's like we need five or <laughs> so, like some small number, and <laughs> um, not too long ago I had a discussion with a colleague, and he thinks, oh, the total world need for quantum computers will be a dozen. And I have a feeling there's this is history repeating itself. There is, um, I mean, today, um, or an important notion when it comes to quantum computers is um, think of quantum computers as a coprocessor. They were like graphics co-processors. They're very good at certain tasks, <laughs> but not very helpful in others. Um, But because they can accelerate um, certain tasks like optimization or the simulation of quantum systems, solution of certain mathematical problems, I would see that we will see them first deployed as addition to classical data centers, so that you have sorry. What's called a hybrid cloud, where you have um, essentially a cloud service that has normal CPUs, that GPUs, TPUs, and also QPUs, uh, quantum processing units, <laughs> and can support um, the workload you have uh, whenever applicable with uh, quantum algorithms. I think that's how it comes out. But in the beginning, you ask sort of these far-out questions. You know, can we upload our consciousness <laughs> into um, a quantum computer? For example, the first consumer application I could see is hyper-realistic virtual reality. Now, there's a, a famous um, quote from Richard Feynman saying that the world is not classical, damn it, and if you want to make a simulation of n- nature, you better make it quantum mechanical. Now, what he had in mind was um, the simulation of, let's say, configuration of molecules or condensed matter physics system, But ultimately, that's also true for um, the patterns we see in nature. They are ultimately born um, or originate from quantum processes. So I I could see if you wanted to make it super credible, um, you will want to, and we discussed already, synthetic images created by quantum gas. So this could be a good application. And then you might see them much more spread out than we think today
2: a major problem faced by quantum computing is that the quantum bits or qubits are pretty fragile and tend to generate a lot of noise and result in errors. So can you please shed some light on qubits and how one can tackle this issue?
1: Yes. So let's first sort of generate an intuition why um, quantum bits, qubits are more sensitive to noise than uh, classical bits. The classical bit, as you well know, can be visualized, let's say, by a coin, like heads or tails, or let's say, by a light switch on or off. It's just two stages. While um, a quantum bit um, can best be visualized, or the state of a quantum bit can best be visualized by... A vector that uh, moves on the unit sphere called the Bloch sphere. But you can see here, this is the state of a qubit is um, characterized by two angles, which are sort of analog quantities, as opposed to a bit, which is, um, yeah, it's literally only one uh, binary um, value you need to describe. And therefore, the disturbances can be more manifold, you know, it's more like a coin floating in, in. outer space, and you want to keep that coin essentially in an exact position, and of course the slightest pressure, <laughs> you know, let's say from some solar wind would move it around a bit, and then it's, it starts to introduce an error. So quantum bits are inherently more sensitive to influences from the environment, and we need to protect them against that, because we, um yeah, Otherwise, the environment acts as a programmer which we don't control, and it programs our qubits, and they execute some program we don't um, know introduce quantum error correction.
0: All right, so actually, we did a bit research, and we found about your law, Nevin's law. So, according to Nevin's law, quantum computers are growing at a doubly exponential rate. So, what set of incidents led you to this hypothesis?
1: Can you please share? Yeah, this just came about as an observation um, in the lab. I mean, there's a basic idea that if you had an error corrected quantum computer and you would just um, add a qubit, we discussed earlier um, uh, scaling differences. So, if you have an um, algorithm like Shor's algorithm that has an exponential advantage. Then, sort of, with every um, qubit you add, um, sort of, yeah, you have the exponential growth. And then, if you just put on the hardware more standard, more slow, like oh, we have every year twice as many qubits, but with every qubit I get sort of an, an exponential gains, then that makes a double exponential. So that's per se not such a deep insight. But the thing that I noticed and that people hadn't appreciated is that it's not only the number of qubits that matters, it's what's a better figure is the computational volume, essentially the number of qubits times um, the depths of your circuit, so essentially the number of operations you can do in your circuit. Um, Because classical simulations are exponentially costly in the number, at least in the general case, they're exponentially costly in the number of operations your um, quantum circuit does. And then same story, if we assume like every year, roughly we um, double um, the amount of qubits or we um, half, um, actually this is more important, we, we half our error rates then our computational volume doubles every year. Um so that's a more traditional analog to Moore's law, but because it's um, exponentially expensive to um, simulate larger volumes, that makes a double exponential. So I think the specific twist here, it's really um, the volume that matters. And I could see that uh, firsthand, didn't take much to um, come up with this conjecture when we had the. Um, the chips that finally reached beyond classical abilities. You know, initially, we played around with just a few qubits on that chip and you could easily check this on the laptop. Um, just a month later, we were sort of in the 30s of qubits um, and then we needed a really fat uh, desktop machine to check. And then, yet a few weeks later, I had to call our system administrators and say, hey, we need like um, millions of CPUs to check whether our processor is doing the right thing. And so it was like very visible. Okay. <laughs> and so I did a little bit uh, right. of calculation and see this follows a double exponential. Okay.
2: Great. So, uh, what are some areas in which quantum computers are required or have greatly improved research? In?
1: Greatly improve, but this,
2: Research, researching.
1: So, um, yes, you asked that question earlier, and of course everybody has this on, on their mind, okay, you guys built quantum computers, sounds fancy, um, what do you do with those? That's the end of the day. Um, and we already pointed you to the quantum algorithm zoo, a collection of algorithms where we know quantum processors can be used Beneficially, as a co processor for a certain tasks. Um, what will the first ones be? I think the first ones is probably in the area of what we call Feynman's Killer App, which is essentially the simulation of quantum systems. So, um, to compute the configurations of um, molecules, to compute dissociation energies, to compute uh, phase transitions in um, condensed matter systems. These are all places where quantum computers naturally act. Um, Another area I find exciting, this ties back to my experience in machine learning, we now know or can show that base operations in machine learning, like producing probability distributions or um, doing feature maps, we can do such operations um, with the processors we have today, beyond what classical machines can do. Um, And we also find that if we apply these techniques to data sets that came about by measuring an entangled quantum system, then those operations seem to confer an advantage. For example, in the sense of reduced sample complexity or um, yeah, faster learning overall. Um, we don't have a good understanding yet how useful these operations would be in the situation of um, general machine learning data sets, how much advantage there is. Um, but that's an interesting challenge and um, people are looking into this right now, um, including in our lab. And we hope to get some better insights how to use these quantum machine learning techniques. But I think sooner or later we will find um, manifest advantages there. And then there's a collection of other things we know of today or suspect today. For example, computing um, NMR spectra you know, that um, in particular for molecules that are bound to surfaces are very important if you want to study uh, proteins and membranes, in itself an important area, um, there would be a good application, Uh, certifiable random numbers, random numbers that are not only statistically um, of high quality, but that you can audit, that you know, essentially the timestamps, these were freshly produced Random numbers. So they're not um, amenable to what's called memory attack anymore. So, yeah, the list goes on from there. Optimization, I always thought, would be a, um, a killer app um, for quantum computing. But there, um, I learned over the years that the jury may be a bit out on this because error correction, quantum error correction, has a very high overhead and it may eat up. A lot of in optimization, we suspect only like a quadratic speed up, even though some of my colleagues claim that we'll be able to do better at the end of the day, and I hope very much that is true. <laughs> but um, let's be pessimistic for now, um, that we can only get a quadratic speed up. That might be eaten up by the over arrow correction overhead, um, and you might have to go to really large optimization problems before you um, get an advantage which would put those further out in the future. But yeah, this gives you a little bit of an idea of application.
0: Okay, That was really amazing to know. So now we will move on to somewhat a personal question. So not only are you a scientist, but you also founded two companies. So we wanted to ask, how was your experience as an entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, two companies and um, I learned a lot in my first and the second one, accordingly, was much more successful. Um, I... how can I best put this? Um, uh, there are many things to say about this. When the startup is, is a beautiful place to learn about all aspects of business, you know, because if you're in a large company, you know, there are all these specialists you know you have a legal problem there's a legal department There's you need to make a budget there's the financing people there's some problem let's say with an employee or you want to hire a new employees There's your hr department and so on in a startup kind of you're just with a bunch of friends and then you're all those departments <laughs> so you you yeah. learn a lot and I think a key to a successful startup is, I mean, it's a very old wisdom, or old wisdom, um, the basic wisdom is focus, 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 and you know, have a good uh, product idea, pers- this product yeah. idea, make it really excellent. Um, as, I think founding a company, as we know, is probably the best, or one of the best legal ways to accumulate wealth, and um, so for, you know, I have two boys, um, the older one is studying computer science, and I wouldn't be sad at all if he wanted to um, start a company and, and try. Yeah,
0: thank you for sharing your experience. So
2: yeah, yeah. I'm here. Uh, so doctor, would you like to share something to the budding scientists and quantum mechanic enthusiasts watching this?
1: um yeah actually i i gave a talk which i can send you a link to we um just had what we call the quantum summer symposium and i had a slide in there that um you guys here from india may enjoy mm-hmm. the title of the slide was um, enabling the ramanujan of quantum computing mm-hmm. and what i was explaining in the slide is you know at google we have a um a strategy when we launch new software products and services and its the strategy says develop for the pros first so the idea is you make an email tool um a video tool um a collaboration tool whatever the the uh, service may be and then make it such that sort of the nerd in the family you know loves it um, and uh, think, oh this is great features fast and and uh, fluent fluid and then she may then teach the rest of the family, you know. She may teach uh, her her siblings, she may teach her parents. And so if the pros like it, you know, that's a good way of um, uh, proliferating um, a product. And at the Quantum AI Lab, we um, have acted pretty much like this, too. You know, we um, have only finite resources in terms of how many people we have, um, how many processors we have, so we went to the best universities and research institutions in the world. We work with NASA, Caltech, MIT, and try to apply the resources there to make these pros successful with our um, machines and hopefully we discover valuable quantum algorithms. But there were recently two events that made me reconsider the strategy. The first, I was working with an intern and we were working on quantum machine learning, and he said, "Oh man, it's so hard you know to think about constructing interference patterns on a hypercube. Yeah. You know we need to start with third graders to <laughs> get the right intuitions and that's actually true. none of us is really trained in this new um coding paradigm of making interference patterns. that's ultimately what you do with a quantum computer. It's very alien to normal computer science." So bringing in sort of fresh, unspoiled minds is um, pretty helpful for our field. Um, And the second is the the recent, here in the US, uh, the the recent um, political um, discussions around diversity and inclusion. And um, it's it's often a difficult discussion. But I think one thing we can all agree upon is that diversity and inclusion has something to do with breaking down barriers to opportunity. And Google, um, actually we just um, added nice simulation capabilities for our processors, so we have essentially um, a service we will soon launch and will be available worldwide, so people can try their hand in running uh, quantum algorithms. And so if you are a kid, let's say, in a town in India, or you are um, a kid in a, in a village in Kenya, as long as your internet bandwidth is good enough to watch a low-resolution um, YouTube video, you have enough internet connection to uh, download our development environment and run a quantum algorithm. So in, in that sense, you know, tapping into this what much wider audience, and this is the reason I put Ramanujan there, um, as you, you well know, Yes. He um, was essentially a self-taught mathematician, raised from a rather yeah. modest um, background, but uh, had very innovative or unusual formulas he came up with that amazed the yeah. um, mathematicians of his time. And finding such talented folk you know, would be um, a good thing for us um, to do as well. And that's why I was also excited for, for you guys to, or to, to talk to uh, guys from IIT. I thought, you know, if you get the message out, hey, here's a, a green field, here's a lot of opportunity. You know, there's still a scarcity of algorithms, and it's just some ingenuity is required, you know, to come up with good algorithms that we can run today. You now, if this word gets out, it's a nice win win. You know, there's opportunities yeah. for um, young people. And mm. my field will benefit if more interesting algorithms get discovered. So yeah, please get excited about this. Or I hope uh, people get excited about this and uh, apply their fresh ingenuity to uh, quantum computing.
0: That was such a pleasure to know this. Thank you also for sharing this with us.
2: It was a very interesting and informative meeting, Doctor. Have a good day.